Welcome to Maker to Market. I'm your host, Amanda George, and on this show, we're here to explore new products and how things are brought to market and also talk about lessons learned along the way. Today, I brought a guest who you've also heard from last week, but I'll let them introduce themselves again. This time, we have a little bit of a surprise for today's show because we talked about his agency, but we're going to let the surprise out of the bag on today's show. Thanks, Amanda. Hi, everybody. It's Scott Maloli from Digital Clicks Marketing. And today I'm here to talk about a company that I started a few years ago that is coming to market called C-Radio, cradio.com. Awesome. So tell us, how did you come up with Seed Radio? Where was the demand driven from? How did this come to be? Because luckily, and if you haven't listened to last week's episode, you should definitely go listen to it. We went from talking about running your own digital marketing agency to now having your own little startup. So tell us how that happened. That's an awesome question. You know, it was definitely a byproduct of agency life. But I, like many others, saw a pretty significant opportunity on video platforms like YouTube, uh, for example. You know, YouTube makes up less than a quarter, maybe a quarter Google's ad revenue, but it's the second largest and arguably maybe the the largest search engine that Alphabet and Google have uh, in their ecosystem. As you know, the idea of video, particularly from the client side, speaking with my agency hat on, is very attractive. But the hard part about video is expensive. It's a process to manage. Not everybody has the resources. You need to have people that are comfortable on screen and so on and so forth. So it was my mission to find a way to democratize that process a little bit, if you will, to make it easier for advertisers to participate on that platform. That's awesome. And so apart from obviously your clients making a request to make this process easier for them, I mean, what does C Radio do for them? That's a little bit different from other platforms. Well, the, the concept was the visualization of, of audio ads. And I was sitting one day with a client and listening to an audio ad. And I immediately was able to sort of visualize what that should look like contextually, if you will. And that's really what started the process and the ball rolling and came up with a concept whereby we could inexpensively produce videos for our clients in relatively short turnaround times. And what we evolved that into was including all of the uh, necessary targeting options, uh, audience targeting options, um, location-based geo-targeting options. We sort of combined uh, the production of the video and the marketing in one instance, if you will. So we were able to kind of take care of the creative burden inexpensively, but also make sure that video content was watched by a locally engaged audience. Because another problem about the video marketplace and YouTube in particular is you can scroll and see videos that have almost next to no views, right? And that's a bit of a sin if you think about it. You make this beautiful video and if nobody's able to see it and experience it, it doesn't have that impact. So we wanted to be able to combine both reliable, affordable video production in concert with powerful distribution. That's awesome. And I, you know, as a marketer, I can sympathize because if I created a video and spent that much time and budget into it and I didn't get a single view, I might just cry in the background. You know, no one will see it, but I think I'd be heartbroken as well. The difference between running an agency and then running your own business, what are some of the stark differences that you've kind of had to come up against, challenges that you faced, or even just success stories of what 
you know, worked really well or maybe times where you had to pivot? Well, it's certainly a different experience, at least for the way my career evolved. You know, on the agency side, particularly because when we started, we were very specialized, paid search only at the time. You know, the business model canvas was at that time fairly straightforward. But when you're trying to build a product, there are so many considerations that one has to make. And I think the first hurdle was for us was uh, validating the idea, the concept and the model, and then making sure that we had the resources as a very small startup and the specialization to be able to help us turn the vision into a reality. So it's a slightly different set of skills. Obviously, you know, we're developing, you know, a web application and you can imagine that that takes a completely different skill set than, you know, managing and running an agency. So some of that specialization, I think, was certainly important that we were able to, you know, beef up our roster with some help in, in that area. And when it comes to building an application, there are you know, literally thousands of considerations that, you know, throughout the mapping process of what you want the technology to look like and do that it is, it is a, it's like a really, really large puzzle and putting the pieces together isn't always evident, but it enjoyable process. It's obviously challenging at times, but completely rewarding. (laughs) Well, it is a lot of work to start anything from the ground up. But in your case, you're extremely lucky that you had the agency and customers to validate an idea, which is not a position many people can say that they're lucky to be in. You know, what lessons have you taken away from that? Or have you taken that a little bit for granted? And then apart from your own customers, did you do any other validation outside of that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, initially, we brought it to our own clients to see if there was one appetite for the service, the product, if you will, and B, if there was going to be continued interest in a product like ours. And then once we realized that uh, we thought we had a market opportunity and we started to, you know, essentially build the framework of what we wanted the application to look like, we worked very hard to find some partnerships with some larger organizations Again, really to take it to a completely different level in terms of commercial validation. So we've been very fortunate that we've been able to do that while continuing to evolve the application. It's so funny how, you know, minimally viable product is probably the bane of my existence. (laughs) Um, Because every time you think you get to the minimally viable product, especially in our case, as we were still validating and developing the application, you know, there were and are hundreds of iterations that we've made in order to make the product ideally suited for our, our end users. No, absolutely. And I think something that's a little bit interesting because you've had to also create something from the ground up is also having to learn some of the technical challenges as well. And I think that's extremely difficult. I, even though have a background, you know, spending 12 years in startups and been in tech for almost 15 years, I'm finding it difficult to also keep up with the amount of changes in technology and methodologies and best practices you know, before you started this journey, what's something you wish someone had told you before you had actually embarked on it? 
That's a really good question. Be patient. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Progress is sometimes a slow process. You know, as an entrepreneur, you want to get things done fast. You see an opportunity uh, and you view that as a moment in time or a window. Uh, and you want to make sure that you get your product to market in that window. But you can't rush. You've got to make sure that not only your product is solid, but the business plan uh, the foundations, the pricing model, et cetera, is there as well, because you want to eliminate as many variables as possible when you're really bringing a product to market. That makes it easier to understand success or failure, in my view. And, uh, you know, this was this has also been a neat experience because I'm working alongside my father, actually, whom I convinced to get on board with this idea. And thankfully, even though he did most of his software development work some time ago, <laughs> he's been um, absolutely essential in helping us get the product to where it is today. And he, uh, you know, in fact, has done a lot of the heavy lifting with our development team. And, and I don't think if we had the wealth of his experience and his knowledge bank, it probably would have taken even longer, frankly. No, absolutely. You definitely need someone to help steer a ship sometimes. And it's, you know, awesome that your dad is right there with you and yeah. can obviously help you steer it with you because not all of us are that lucky to have someone so close within our circle. But I also love the fact that you said that, you know, take your time with it. And, you know, there's a lot of, of products on the market right now that are kind of half-baked or, you know, like you said, want to eliminate as much as the probability or viability of your product out from the beginning to make sure that it works. Because one of my favorite quotes, which comes from David Ogilvy, is great marketing only makes a bad product fail faster. And I actually have... Only Scott can see this because I'm holding my sign. But it's a sign that I actually keep on my desk because it's true. Absolutely. You've got a great product. It kind of speaks for itself and it will generate its own buzz. But if you've got a really bad product and you go to market with that and then try to do some marketing efforts, your customers are only going to point out the flaws. And I think it's almost like a two-way pull where it's almost that battle of what's the importance of marketing and what's the importance of product. And my, in my beliefs as well, you've got a strong product and makes life easier. If you've got a product that's half-baked, makes things a little bit more difficult because then you're just dealing with a cascade of requests and problems and issues. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that quote's bang on. On the product side of things, testing, 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 testing. You know, you really want to make sure that all of the hard work that you're putting into the product does its job. And especially in our case, we want the user of the platform to be, we, we, we want it to be as intuitive as possible because we certainly don't want to have a product that's complicated for somebody to use when we're delivering, you know, a, a fairly easy to understand product and service at the at the end, right? So we are trying to make the experience that people have working with our application as smooth and as common sense as possible, if, if that makes sense. Nope, that absolutely makes sense. And I, I try to explain this to anyone I speak to, especially my family, who's not very tech savvy. These are end user customers. Trying to explain the process of what it takes to actually get something up and running I need a really good diagram someone's put out. Like, I just need someone to create a really good diagram of how complex this can be. Because right. I think what a lot of users don't understand is the complexity behind software. Yes, the software works. Yes, it does all these amazing things. But the complexity it takes to actually build new software from scratch is 
astronomical sometimes. It's, it can be significant. And, uh, you know, our, our CTO, who is really tackles the majority of the, you know, sort of front end work, I would say, with our development team, it's essential. It's such a big beast to manage. And one of the things that you got to think about, too, is, you know, as you're making feature changes to enrich the product, you always have to think about, well, what are the what are the implications of making this change? That's been another lesson learned. You try to plan ahead and you try to plan for all of the um, scenarios when you're determining how you're going to add a feature onto the product or, or, or whatever the case may be. But really, you've got to make sure that one change doesn't impact the product experience in a, in a negative way uh, somewhere else down the chain. So that's been um, a pretty steep learning curve, I would say, in, in my experience. No, absolutely. It kind of reminds me of a time I was working with a client who was using a MySQL database for all of their customer information, and it was tied to another system and to Salesforce. And someone actually deleted one of the library files in MySQL for some of the customer information and didn't think that it would impact the other systems. But the file that they actually, or library they actually deleted, was the actual customer numbers. And the customer numbers were then tied to several other systems that helped to identify what each customer bought from the e-commerce site. So someone accidentally deleted it and it had some pretty severe repercussions for that client. And to your point, like you do really have to think about if I delete something or modify or alter something, what are the downstream impacts of this change? This person was just like, no, today I felt like deleting it. So I did. And I was like, oops, wow. not a good idea. So not a good situation to be in. No, but of uh, like a perfect example of a worst case scenario. Yep. Well, you can imagine the lesson they learned from that day. And of course, like no one was going to yell at you, but obviously, you know, maybe consult with other people first before going to make major changes in the system. Absolutely. That's the key word right there. Consulting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you really want to make sure that you run those things by uh, your teammates to ensure that a scenario like that doesn't happen. Absolutely. Now, with your own product, does this change the way that you service your clients on the agency side? Is it a little bit different? Have you kind of consulted with them on maybe utilizing your platform more when you're working with them? You know, I, I've tried to keep them uh, as separate as possible. Uh, I, I think I keep mentioning challenges and I, I don't want it to seem like the, the mountain is insurmountable. Um, but <laughs> I think the thing, one of the things that was really challenging for me is that he, here I am now with two businesses that need my time and my energy, separating the two of them and being able to focus on both is difficult, frankly. In terms of how we deal with our clients and the agency side, it really hasn't changed our approach to dealing with our clients, but it has certainly advanced ideation around the productization of products and services on the agency side and, you know, how we package and pair certain things together for certain businesses or industries or verticals. So it, it certainly, I think, helped us that way. But I... I Honestly speaking, I don't think it's changed our approach with how we work with our clients on the agency side, you know, except to say that this is something that, you know, productization in general, especially in the digital universe is it's not going away and it's opportunities abound, really. 
So something that they should be really paying attention to, frankly. No, and you're right. Technology is definitely not going away. It's continuously advancing and will continue to advance. And I think it's something that we all have to learn to embrace because it's not going anywhere. One other thing that's kind of interesting too is, you know, the introduction of AI products into everyday life and seeing where that's going. You know, hot topic with my last guest, actually, we talked a lot about AI with my previous guest, and we talked about chat GPT. AI is always an interesting topic. How do you want to see AI being implemented in the future? Because I have ideas around what I want to see, but it's not being utilized in any way, shape or form. Well, that's a really interesting question. Maybe I could put it back to you and, and ask you, how, how do you want to see it integrated? I want to see AI remove cumbersome activities from my day-to-day world. I mean, you're seeing, you know, everyone's scared that AI is going to replace, you know, manual labor jobs. And it's not about replacing. It's just a different shift in, in how you actually conduct your work. If AI can help us simplify everyday tasks, that would be amazing. For example, a simple use case that I think AI could be helpful for is creating a database that can actually scan my groceries instead of me having to type in that four-digit code on, let's say, lettuce, because really and truly that is six steps going into lookup code, then look up the item or enter the code and you know it's cumbersome. But I mean, AI can do so many amazing things with content and that's not where I think it needs to be used or utilized. Let's be able to build AI machines that can recognize when I put my vegetables down on your scanner, what vegetable that is. I mean, someone already knew, like figured out how to scan their cat's poop to recognize trends and changes in poop. You're telling me you can't scan images of vegetables that are commonly purchased in a grocery store that I could just place on your scanning device already and be able to identify what that is. That was a a really good way of utilizing AI for me. It's just, I think AI is is over-glorified in a couple of different ways. It really is just machine learning. means that you can train the machine to do a certain thing, but let's make it more practical. Let's make life a little easier versus go after content creators because I just think that content creation, it really is the epitome of human creativity. And to hinder that by a machine, that's a little unfair. Let's use it for more practical day-to-day things. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I'd never heard the use case about the cat. Uh, that's interesting. <laughs> Again, I totally agree with you. I think that there's a big difference between people's interpretation of AI and what AI really is. I also think that AI should be designed to eliminate uh, mundane or redundant tasks. In fact, on the agency side, we have already integrated AI and robotic process automation in our ad technology to help us do just that. You can appreciate that if you're managing a fairly significant media budget for a client, you've got hundreds or thousands of potential optimizations and changes that you can make in that account. And AI process automation helps us enormously with managing the volume of tasks uh, that are required today in order to be able to fully support an advertiser. Furthermore, actually, our technology's uh, been integrated with ChatGPT in a testing scenario. What we're really looking for is whether or not it can help us in scenarios. Again, I'll, I'll, I'll reference the creative burden, but even sometimes, you know, coming up with smart 
contextually relevant ad copy um, and having multiple versions that are worthwhile to be tested, you know, that's a scenario that we're working with it right now to see, you know, how valuable it can be in a situation like that. I also agree you're never going to replace people. I don't think it will will happen. To your point about Kant, I mean, I shouldn't say it won't happen. <laughs> it, it won't eliminate the need for people. I think the appropriate way to frame that. And um, lastly, your comment about content. I think we're just at the starting point, And I think that's an easy place to begin. That's why we are where we're at with it right now. I also think that it's not far down the road where it's going to be integrated into our everyday lives in a whole bunch of different scenarios. I mean, I can see a version of chat GPT, you know, replacing like your Google assistant or Siri in your car, quite frankly, you gave a great use case about uh, the grocery store. There could be other use cases where you've got artificial intelligence, uh, you know, reviewing medical databases, histories, things of that nature. So it, it, it can be absolutely a game changer. And I, I, having said that, you know, it, it also has to be done carefully and considerately because, you know, anything that intelligent, you know, it could be dangerous as well. So again, you know, I, I, I hope the, and there's way smarter people than me that are thinking about these things and the engineers that are contemplating those decisions. Uh, so hopefully the companies that are leading the charge on this are thinking that way too. And it serves as a real benefit for everyone. I hope so too, because the last thing I want to do is live out Blade Runner in real life. <laughs> <I'm good. laughs> I don't want to go there either. <laughs> I don't want to live in a world where we're, you know, real life Blade Runner and I've got to run away from this super AI robot that might be more intelligent than me. That's Agreed. a little too scary. <laughs> and that's the thing too. I think Hollywood is, it, and everybody's now a tech company. Everyone's now a tech enthusiast. And sometimes some of these things get blown out of proportion, but you know, here we are in what, 2023. And I thought we'd have flying cars by now. And the best we've got is Tesla's. So I'll take what I can get. But even with Tesla's, we know that there's also environmental impacts that are coming with that too. We just trade off one impact for the other. That's essentially what we're doing. It's true. There's technological impacts too with Tesla. I mean, their AI, uh, their technology is, um, you know, some could argue still a bit of a test case scenario because they're, you know, gathering data and feedback from their vehicles that real world drivers are testing for them every single day. I agree with you too. I was really hoping we'd be flying or transporting ourselves to work by now, but we're not. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, maybe if we're lucky enough, that'll happen in our lifetime. But, you know, when you look at the rate of change, the pace of change with technology in the last few years, it really is remarkable how quickly things are moving. Absolutely. I mean, I'll even start with a hoverboard if someone could create one that actually yes. hovers across. <laughs> like, yes. I just want a hoverboard. Let's start with that. Agreed. I know the, what was that little toy thing that everybody had? And it was like the little two wheelie thing. All the kids had it. Oh, I, uh, I got it. <laughs> I don't remember the name of the toy, but yeah, it had two wheels and everyone was driving those things around. I tried that and I fell forward one too many times on that thing. So if someone actually generates hoverboard that'd be pretty cool i'm totally in on the hoverboard <laughs> i mean other things that are also cool too and we talk a lot about ai there's a lot of stuff that's happening in the back end too that probably impacts how you develop product you know the containerization 
methodologies that have changed. For example, now jumping onto microservices, people don't realize how fast technology is actually changing in the background. And even trying to keep up with all the changes today, I think my head is starting to explode. And you really have to de- like dedicate a lot of time to keeping up with how fast things are transforming in the tech space as well. You know, we went from just having web two to now trying to enter web three, which is still feeling a little far-fetched and not adoptable to every market quite yet. But then you've also got great strides in terms of things like how do you containerize certain applications or how do you actually go and do some of these things a little bit better. And sometimes those those terms aren't coined properly, but are also used a little bit wonky as well. For example, you know, we talked about how AI has kind of been blown out of proportion and sort of needs to be a three level set. I think folks that aren't as techie uh, should definitely take a look at maybe trying to understand how the back end works, because then you probably have a further appreciation for how much of this actually impacts your day to day use case. And on that note as well, how are you keeping up with the changes from a tech standpoint to implement them in your product? Is that something that you're finding having to do more frequently or is a part of the planning that you do for the future? Uh, it's both. You know, we have to look at technology. There's changes in marketing technology all the time. And there are more and more capabilities that, you know, applications can deliver now than ever before. So it's really challenging to stay on top of it. I do a lot of reading. I watch a lot of videos. I listen to a lot of podcasts. And that's generally how I try to stay up to date. Usually it's driving one kid to hockey and I'm boring them to death with a podcast or something of that nature. So thank goodness they just throw in the AirPods and I can keep getting my education on while we're heading to hockey practice or what have you. And these words that get, um, you know, grabbed onto by, you know, consumers and the media and things like that, you're right. They can certainly get a little bit blown out of proportion. I mean, things happen really quickly when you're in the space. And sometimes when you're not in the space, you know, it doesn't seem like it's, it's moving as rapidly as it is. I think people like you and I, I mean, it's, it's in our feed every day. And for us, it's coming at us fast and furious. Yeah, I mean, you know, just try to skim the headlines every day, uh, keep up to date. When there are announcements like ChatGPT and from OpenAI and you know, Google Bard and things of that nature, when it's something that unique, you know, I, I tend to dig a little deeper. Yeah, I think tech advancements and tech changes has become the new fad. That's what it's happened. Yes. You know, it used to be, what was it, trading cards or whatever toy was trending or some new piece of, I mean, God, let's think about even camcorders. The new upgrades every year was like the most exciting thing you would be waiting for. Oh. Now, completely replaced with like solutions like ChatGPT or when Pokemon Go first came out. Everyone was on the AR craze when that first came out. And now you don't really hear a ton about AR and how it's being utilized anymore. And that's just another great example. But tech really has become the new fad situation. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. And, you know, some of these things, I think, are time and space, too. It's just like Web3. I I don't know if that's really been thought through enough yet for the concept to turn into a digital reality yet, but yeah, I, again, you know, I put these poor people on the podcast. It's a good thing they can't see us. Cause I just keep 
agreeing with you and nodding my head. <laughs> Sorry, we're not arguing. <laughs> no, absolutely not. But no, I mean, it, it is a lot to keep it ahead of. And one thing that also kind of plagues my mind when I think about the changes and how rapidly it's happening, you know, for the everyday consumer, they're not thinking about these things, but they're touching and interacting with it every day. And it's become a critical part of our day-to-day lives. And I actually had a really interesting discussion with uh, one of my 12-year-old nephews who is telling me that in his class, they're doing some basic coding. And I think one of the things that took way too long for the Canadian government or specifically the Ontario or Toronto government to actually implement in classrooms was learning how to do your taxes. You know, children are touching technology way sooner. We are not even looking at education and technology in the way that it should be. We all know that social media exists, but there's no course or any content from what I've heard from my little nephews and nieces telling me, hey, our teachers or classroom have a mandate to now educate us on safe use of the internet, for example, or even safe use of different technologies, because I am seeing one too many threads of teachers now recognizing their students using AI machines to write essays. And they can tell like plagiarism has gone right out the door. It was something that was very harped on a lot when I was in school. Now, I don't think plagiarism quite exists. They kind of mention it, but how do you stop it? But yet these are things that aren't kind of catching up with the times. And in addition to that, you know, for kids that aren't in school, because unfortunately, and I I can't tell you how many times my mom has almost fallen victim to one of those pop-up ads where it's like, hey, something's wrong with your Windows device. Click here for support. And I have to be like, mom, don't touch it. Or even when she's getting SMS texts, like there's no... You know, the government talks a lot about adopting technology, but they're also not doing their part of protecting citizens from it either. So there's a little bit of an education gap that kind of has to happen. And I think that's where we're going to have to help people soon. I agree, especially with children. I think media literacy is critical, particularly digital media literacy. I also think that educators are missing an opportunity to start teaching children about the web in general, the biology of the web, how it works, what are search engines, how to use them, how to leverage them properly. There are so many use cases for a tool just like a search engine alone that so many people don't know that could help and improve their lives. I think it's critical. But certainly on the social media side, you know, there has been finally a lot of public discussion about the safety of these platforms and tools and the people that interact with them. And I do think it's important that we start discussing those big conversations because they do impact people. We've seen that. We've studied it long enough now. And we know that there are lots of really good things about social media and technology, but there are also some pretty considerable drawbacks with the way we're using it right now, consuming it. Definitely. And you brought up a really good point, too, because one of the things that I remember going through in school was actually talking about how search engines actually worked. And I was told that I could go search for things, but I need to be careful what I search for. What students these days need a little bit of help with, and I don't think from, and I don't remember the last time I may have searched this up myself, but there is no way to validate sites. And that's one thing I think that's getting a little bit harder and harder to do. Because sometimes you'll go and do a search for, let's say, a research paper or something you're writing about in school, 
how do you verify a source these days? We know with the point. Yeah, with the increase of duplicate sites, with fake sites and fake news, etc. You know, in the corporate world, I go through security training once a year where I'm taught how to, you know, spot a phishing email or how to look for a web address, etc. Is this something that's being taught to children as well? Because you're teaching them how to use Google and encouraging them to use the web to write their essays or whatever the case may be. How do you teach them what a verified source is? Yeah, uh, you know, everything old is new again. I mean, you, you can't believe everything that you read or see or watch online, you know, validating that to, through two or three or four different and independent sources is always the way to go. It's too easy for people to just perform a Google search and take that information as gospel and you know, especially people when they're looking up like medical conditions and things like that. My <laughs> advice is always just don't do it. <laughs> you're going to die. Every search yeah. result's going to be, you're going to die. Don't, don't <laughs> consult with Dr. Google just yet. Maybe go and actually see somebody. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you being a fellow Canadian here, you might remember the commercial, but I actually saw it revived. I don't know how well this campaign actually reached. Do you remember the House Hippo commercial? I do. Yep. So here in Canada, we used to have these little commercials that were geared towards children and safety of obviously watching TV back in the day, because TV was the uh, media vehicle of evil back in the 90s and early 2000s. And we had a series called House Hippo, which basically was the premise of the commercial was to tell you not to believe everything that you saw on TV. They actually did a version 2.0 of that a couple years ago uh, to inform children to not believe everything that's on the internet. But again, that's just the tip of the iceberg of talking about a campaign. It's the resourcing that goes behind it. And that's where it fell a little bit for me is when I got to the resources, you know, you're not telling the kids what's verified site. You're not telling them how to be safe on the internet. You're also not telling them what they should, what they should keep an eye out for to be safe. So that's where the campaign fell. Was the public service announcement, was it delivered on television or was it delivered on a digital medium? Oh, it was actually delivered on YouTube this time, which oh, I loved. Oh, great. Good. <laughs> because if they made the mistake of putting it on television, you might not be reaching them at all. No. And you know what? Because we're not on TV any, or watching as much TV, you know, if anyone wants to advertise on Netflix for that with the, you know, the ad version, by all means do it. But uh, I loved it, the revival of that commercial because it was an integral part of my Canadian childhood. There you go. <laughs> well, thanks, Scott, for coming on to the show once more. Uh, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, give it a shot. If not, I will see you next week with a new guest. Thanks, everyone. Thanks very much for having me. And this was a great experience. I really enjoyed it. 